Hello, Internets. This is Sam Drog, and you are listening to Sam Drog's Manic Episodes. In this episode, we have William Cameron Menzies and the Art of Production Design. Okay, so what we're going to talk about here today, ladies and gentlemen, are production designers, and specifically production designers who have directed a movie or two. In my uh, journey here, I discovered that most production designers may have tried directing, but they didn't usually stick with it. I think uh, what I got the gist of is that a production designer is used to being in their studio, in their office, by their paints, by their sketch pads, by probably whatever 3D editing video program, art program that they're using nowadays. Uh, they're used to being in there, and they're used to having control, and they're used to yelling at their pencils, and not used to yelling at people. And I understand this because I've always aspired to make my own films, and I've done a few, but one thing I don't like to do is tell people what to do. And I can only, I do like drawing and writing, but on a set, telling people what to do isn't really natural to me. And so I just know when I go in to make something, that is not going to be my strong suit. <laughs> and so I just go like, okay, you know, let's do this. Uh, it, ju it just doesn't come natural to me. I can imagine that if you're a production designer and you are an amazing artist, you probably got that way not by being a people person or not being an alpha uh, <clears throat> type A person. You're probably driven to perfect your art, not the art of negotiating and coddling uh, bullshit or just uh, dealing with the insane reality that hits you every day on a set. So, what I'm thinking here is we're going to just talk about some production designers who directed, and as I said earlier, the number one person that we're going to focus on here today is a William Cameron Menzies, kind of a production designer above all production designers uh the guy who sort of set it off and made it famous was William Cameron Menzies a little bit of a bio on William I would say he was born and I'm not making this up uh a little bit of research uh went into this as I went down the rabbit hole he uh was born in 1896 and what I'd like to do in future episodes is give some context of what was going on in 19 I mean 1896 that was 100 years before 1996 which I could tell you a little bit about yes I could uh I could tell you a little bit about uh going to go see Dante's Peak uh I don't know um I was working at a movie theater in 1996. I can tell you about being a projectionist there. Uh, but 1896, I don't really have many facts on that. And so, born in 1896, and he died in 1957. I believe he was just about, uh, he was almost 60 years old. People died young back then. I think 
probably in William Cameron Menzies, uh, he probably worked himself to death. He, he, yeah. So he was, uh, born in 1896 in Connecticut. He's a American boy. And, um, he was a, you know, the most famous production designer of the time. Um, what is a production designer, you may ask? There is, I was a little confused on it, between production designer and art director. Um, you always think, art director, he's directing all the art. But art director talks up to the, he's got to report to the production designer. And um, the uh, production designer is the guy who creates the entire overall look of the movie. From the, uh, if he's doing his job, or they're doing their job, um, that's what they're doing. Um, you, you're com coming up with the uh, color scheme. You're coming up with the uh, the look of the uh, everything. Everything that's going to be on the film, you're coming up with it. It's not just sets. It's uh, props and everything and color scheme. Um, and that's what he was most famous for. Uh, Menzies, you know would come up with uh, color palettes for each of, of, for his movies and the individual scenes. And we'll get more into that in a minute. So a production designer, when you think, you know, James Bond movies, you or Star Wars movies, or Blade Runner, a lot of what you're thinking about is not the acting. A lot of what you're thinking about is the production design. And I'm a real sucker for that. If a movie's got a good production design, I can forgive almost anything. Um, so William Kimmer Menzies was uh, a par excellent <laughs> production design. You're going to find on this show, I use a lot of words that I don't know how to say. So maybe that can be something that will be uh, uh, something that will show up and you can point out to me when I don't know when I'm how to talk right, how to talk pretty, me talk pretty one day. Um, so, okay, so production design, that's what that is. Um, now, William Cameron Menzies would draw out the look of each scene, the sets. He would design the sets. He would design, you know, the, the look of the sets and... In addition to drawing them out and drawing out the shots, and that's something he did. We'll get into that. Um, after he drew out what the shot, the, what the the location would look like, he would then build it in miniature. Um, I guess out of balsa wood or at night foam core. I seem to remember in in uh, theater class uh, after you designed a set, you build it out in foam core. So. So now you got a little miniature version of the set, and so now you can really make sure that um, your plans are going to look right when it actually gets built. So, I might. Okay, so let's just get the cat out of the bag here. When Cameron Menzies would draw every shot of the movie, he was like a storyboard artist. So that's been kind of um, parlayed into different jobs that the production designer doesn't really do. You got storyboard artists now. I'd love to talk to one um, uh, for this show. Maybe there's somebody I can call up and talk 
to uh, one. I know somebody from Twitter. Um, I'd like to see how he works with the production designer on on those shots. And it seems like in the past, storyboard artists, when I talk to them, they don't really, um, when I read interviews with them, uh, they don't talk a lot about the production designer. So, so storyboard artists, but now I've kind of taken over this job of, of drawing out every shot. But this guy here, he is famous for going in and drawing every single shot and angle uh, that's going to be in the movie so he can then design the set around that which sounds just like an amazing opportunity and an amazing way to do it I mean guerrilla filmmaking you're just like who's got a buddy who we could borrow a location from you know there's not like oh let's draw the shot out oh this is what it's going to look like oh let's let's now craft a set to look and provide for what this uh, <laughs> what this shot that I drew is going to look like. So amazing. Uh, so he would do that, and he would also color them, and and uh, you know, and then say like, okay, we need a consistent color palette here. So what he did was he brought a sense of illustration and composition and and uh, graphic vitality to the movies that he worked on. And if you watch his probably most famous movie, a little indie film called Gone with the Wind, even whatever you say about the politics of that movie, the movie's pretty amazing. The, the, what snaps into your head, though, <clears throat> is the look of that movie. There's no movie that looks like Gone with the Wind or feels like Gone with the Wind or comes together in that old Hollywood style like Gone with the Wind. And those shots of like, um, uh, 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 those shots of Scarlett O'Hara by the tree looking out at that sunset um, and the panning back and the, you know, it's a powerful imagery that a director wouldn't bring to it. <laughs> uh, uh, that is from the production designer, and that was William Cameron Menzies' contribution to that movie, amongst other things that we're going to get into. Um, so he did bring this uh, sense of illustration to the screen, and uh, his first movie, <laughs> we're kind of bouncing around here a little bit, uh, his first movie was made in 1917. Uh, he was 21 years old, and he was the production designer on a on a silent film called, of course, silent, uh, Mark of Cain, which there's very little information on. Um, his last movie, he was a producer on um, Around the World in 80 Days in 1956. He died in 1957, so, I mean, he worked pretty much up to the very last minute of his life. Um, producing that time. He, he, he slowly branched out into other areas uh, just depending on um, you know the, the, the film. You know, he's a producer, he was production designer, of course, and he did direct a few films and that's what brought me to him. 
60 years old, I would like to tell you, maybe in, if there's film notes, I would like to say that um, how many films he did work on, how many movies. I'll be back to you on that. Okay, his last movie, Around the World in 80 Days, uh, which I believe is Jules Verne. <laughs> maybe not, I don't know, Jules Verne. Uh, but the movie that I came to him on and what started this trail was Things to Come. Now, how do I know about Things to Come? Well, I've got the Criterion Channel. Well, why do I got the Criterion Channel? Well, because I have a son named Cameron. Oh, uh, interesting. William Cameron Menzies. Cameron, my son, um, will only watch old movies with me. Uh, he does not like anything modern. Um, he doesn't like anything contemporary. He likes old, creaky, um, weird stuff. And maybe he got that from me. I don't know. But I know I would rather watch an old movie than a contemporary movie. Um, just because I go like, man, if I'm hearing about it, and it was made 50 years ago, it must be good just that the fact that it's still in the conversation. Um, and new movies, you know, whatever, you know, they're fine, but we all know that um, too loud, too fast, <laughs> too fake. The storytelling is secondary to pretty much everything else in a lot of movies. Um, or the, the story just gets buried and all the fluff. So Cameron's very picky. He only likes old things. His favorite movie is Metropolis. I mean, he's 12, but since eight, when I first saw it in Metropolis, he kind of went down his own rabbit hole. This is a family of rabbit holes. Uh, we are a family of rabbits, and we go down these holes, and uh, Cameron went down this uh, hole for Metropolis. Like when I showed it to him, it's a two and a half hour movie with uh, subtitles. He will not watch anything over 15 minutes, but this movie got him. It was the science fiction element, but it was also the uh, apocalyptic religious imagery that really got him on Metropolis. So if I find something kind of like Metropolis, I'll try to show it to him. He's a very picky lad, though. Um, and so, so because he only watches these old movies with me, I uh, decided to, um, because he only watches these old movies with me, I decided to subscribe and stay subscribed to uh, Criterion Channel, which is pretty much one of the few places you can actually get old movies. You got Amazon Prime, which has, you know, a pretty good selection of, you know, your mom and pop uh, uh, video store horror films that you never thought you would see again, and all sorts of insane stuff is on Amazon you never thought you would be able to find. Um, but Netflix is not going to have anything over, you know, pre-1970, you know, and really those are just like the big ones you'll see or Taxi Driver or something like that. But really old movies, you're just not going to see. Um, the only other thing I think I've seen that's really old are like World War II uh, documentaries made by uh, directors like I saw in Let There Be Light, which was, I believe, Howard Hawks or John Ford. I can't remember. No, wait, or Frank Capra. Forget it. 
We're not talking about that stuff. We are talking about William Kimmer Menzies. So um, let's stick to the point. Uh, so I saw, thought Cameron might enjoy things to come, which I just knew from some uh, from some artwork, you know, that I had seen. So H.G. Wells, Things to Come, 1936. Uh William Cameron Menzies had already been working since 1917, so, I mean, he's had, like, almost a 20-year uh, career at this point. Uh, he's 40 at the time. Uh, other films that came out in 1936 were Modern Times and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Uh, so that's about what we're dealing with here. I would say movies were in a pretty good swing at this time. You can watch a movie from 1936 and it not feel like you know, a stage play. You know, people, I mean, we're post the, uh, post the silent era, um, but, um, you know, when they went to the sound, you know, they had to lock down the camera so much, but these movies, you know, the the good examples of the, of the time uh, really show a nice uh, cinema language that will feel modern to you in uh, some cases. Uh, 1936. And so what did I know about uh, Things to Come or what struck me um, was the influence I felt from Metropolis, which was born in, which was born in 1927, um, in, again, Cameron's favorite film, but uh, 1927, so about 10 years before we had Metropolis, and then we have this movie, which is is very uh inspired by metropolis i would say and especially in the look of the futuristic city once you get there and also because everything's art deco and boy they lean in heavy on this one uh with those sets um just like metropolis did and also both movies have a social consciousness kind of aspect to them um that they both lean heavily into uh, and both are very much, um, well, I would say Metropolis is very much uh, class conscious and very much saying like, people should, <laughs> look, we're not gonna get rid of the classes, uh, workers stay working, leaders keep leaving, and we're just gonna have somebody, you know, you're gonna have a rep, you know, <laughs> adventure, you're gonna have a complaint box now. Um, uh, things to come dreams of a classless society where everyone's equal um, everyone's equal and everyone shares everything so I would think um, there are absolutely socialistic uh, 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 bends uh, to this story uh, which are funny which are funny to listen to just because I mean back in the um, early 1900s, you know, I mean, socialism was all the, you know, people were going like, go socialism. And this was, you know, before the backlash of McCarthy and, uh, you know, the anti, uh, you know, don't better red than dead type stuff that was going around. This movie was very much a kind of in the zeitgeist. I remember, uh, whatchamacallit, in modern Times was it um, Charlie Chaplin um, uh, gets stuck uh, uh, leading a uh, pro-social communist uh, parade and go gets thrown in jail. Um, and I just read this book, uh, The Jungle, which is probably like 
if you're not a communist by the time you get reading uh by the time you're re done reading the jungle you're you're you know <laughs> i don't i you're lying because you are because that that book is uh pure shrill uh screaming about the evils of capitalism and uh the wonders and the fix all solve of uh socialism so um <clears throat> I'm not going to pretend I know anything about this stuff. All right. Okay, so this movie, 1936, <clears throat> written by H.G. Wells. He actually wrote the screenplay <clears throat> and based on his book. This is all 1936, so it's pre-war. The big one, WWII. Um, but it's pretty much predicting that this war is going to happen. And uh, at the beginning, people are going like, oh, no, it's just a bunch... You know, we're going to be able to crush this bad guy. And it takes place in this town called Everywhere. Uh, everywhere, whatever. And uh, in the city, when you first start watching it, you're going to be struck by uh, the look of the movie. Uh, the, the, the miniature work is amazing. The way they compose and uh, uh, composite live action elements into these models is amazing uh the city is made to look like every city they, you've got all different types of architecture it's got this crazy dreamlike feeling to it uh this movie is pretty amazing things to come has got a lot of amazing things in it uh you should see this movie um it is uh, a pre-war movie that predicts the war um, it has uh, amazing sets. It has amazing composition, set composition. This is the first movie. Okay, blah. This is the first movie that William Cameron Menzies directed. Uh, I think. Yes, I think. Okay, so he directed this one. He graduated after 20 years of working in the business. He got his opportunity to direct the movie, and he made this giant social sci-fi epic that. What what's is going to shock you too is just the hugeness of the story and how influential uh, certain things that you will see in it are. Um, you've got this movie that takes place in certain time periods, and these title com cards come up, and they say the year, and then you get a little bit of movie talking about what was going on that year. Like the first section is the start of the war. And then you come up with this next year, and it's real fun because it starts with like 1940 and the war starts. And then, you know, got it. Um, the 19, um, then it goes up to 1950, and the war has been going on for 10 years. And you're going like, oh man, how horrible that would have been <laughs> had it gone on 10 years. We'd all be dead. Um, and, this, and the world's decimated by the war. And then you go over, you know, so it's like 1950, and it's like 1960, and the war is still going on. And um, what was crazy, what I did not see coming was at, at certain point in all the devastation, this disease breaks out, and there's no hospitals or medicine production. So you get sick with this disease, you're just pretty much gone. And it's called like the wandering disease. And if you catch it, you basically just wander around like a zombie. So, this movie's kind of a zombie movie. On top of everything else that it's got going on, it's also a zombie movie. And so, I found that to be pretty cool. Um, 
So you got this post-apocalyptic world that's been destroyed by war, and you got zombies wandering around in it. And you're going like, I can't believe this movie is going there. Because this movie is going there, Cameron starts checking out. Cameron's like, Dad, I hate apocalypse movies. And um, I go like, well, I really didn't know this movie was going to be apocalypse. He doesn't like... When he was a boy, and I took him to see Amazing Spider-Man 2, and Mary Jane... No, no. Gwen Stacy falls to her death at the end. Spoilers. Um, Gwen Stacy falls to her death at the end, and Spider-Man can't say her. He starts crying. I go like, are you sad because Gwen Stacy dies? And he goes like, no... I'm sad because the clock got destroyed. And, um, you know, that's just Cameron. Um, so, yeah, he was upset that the clock got destroyed because he hates to see collateral damage. <laughs> he, when Martians come and they blow up, you know, City Hall in War of the Worlds, that very much upsets him. So, you know, you can't torture the boy. Um, He's like, Dad, I don't like this. I don't like post-apocalypse. And I go like, okay, I'll see you later. So he he splits. I continue. Um, you got some amazing miniature work in this. I've talked about that. Um, and you've got this uh, pro-social aspect of it where they're going like, let all the crazy warmongers kill each other off and then us, the scientific elite, will inherit the Earth, and we're going to make everything perfect because we're scientists and we think reasonably. And the elite, scientific elite, will rise up and keep everybody in check and tidy up the world. And then we'll get rid of classes, and everybody will be geniuses, and we'll social engineer, and we'll get rid of the, <laughs> you know, all the, uh, all the unperfect people will be uh, eventually, you know, will probably have killed themselves in war. So the elite will be left. The cream will rise to the top. And and there is like this pro-social engineering aspect to it. You know, this is all before World War II. So people would think these things. These were, these were thoughts going around. You know, eugenics and... Uh, other things like that. Okay, I'm back. Excuse me if you hear me drinking. I am now drinking not coffee at all, but Great Value Big K. No, is this? No, this is the Great Value kind. This isn't. That's probably why this isn't working out. I'm drinking the Great Value Walmart brand of diet cream soda, zero calorie, great vanilla taste. That's how suburban I am. Um, but I have been mainlining cream soda for the last week, and each can had like 4,000 grams of sugar, 180 calories, and I was uh, drinking so much of it that um, I was turning into a sheet cake. So I needed to uh, change my pitch up. And this is got that wonderful aftertaste of aspirin so okay which we all love all right i've been talking almost i want these things to run about 45 minutes and i have been talking 
We've still got a lot to do. Oh my gosh. Okay, so things to come. It's a war movie. It's a zombie movie. It's a speculative fiction movie. You'll look at this movie and you'll go like, look at those shot compositions. He brought an illustrator's eye to the way he set up those shots and laid out those sets and made things look. And you go like, oh my gosh, there is a controlling hand in this movie showing you what it wants to show you, how it wants to show you it. And uh, I can just say also this, the costume design, the giant, the, excuse me, when the uh, man from the future or the man from the enlightened society comes to the, uh, the uh, uh, war torn areas of the world and talks to the, uh, the despot uh, uh, warmonger leader, it says like, well, well, old fellow, you must give up your, um, you must give up your sovereignty and join the collective unit. You know, United Nations at the time, you know, big deal going like, oh, one world government, new world order, ah, you know, a lot of people were against all this stuff. Um, so, but his, his costuming, I would love to see somebody do a, a cosplay with that. It's like this, uh, Art Deco molded, uh, molded, uh, molded plastic. I mean, it's probably, uh, I can't think of the word right now. Um, molded fiber plastic, uh, uh, shell he's walking around in and like, uh, black long sleeves, uh, black pants, but also like these big old black gloves. And then he's got like this helmet that he puts on. The, the helmet is about 20 times the size it needs to be. It is striking. Um, recommend it just for that guy's spacesuit. Um, they're called like the New World Order is called like the Airmen of the Sky or something like that. But you look at the shot composition, and I'm a sucker for a good shot composition. And these these shots are locked down, and he's got everybody standing in the shot exactly where he told them to be standing in the shot to make his composition look good. And I appreciate that kind of stuff, that kind of artifice. Um, the miniature work, again, amazing. When you see the future city and you see that they've hollowed out a mountain to put this future city inside of, you're, you're, you're going to lose your mind. The miniature work of this movie is incredible, as good as Metropolis. Um, the compo the, and the compositing work uh, was great. We talked about that, how he would uh, import... Uh, Import. He would composite uh, live action elements into the shot, you know, using those, uh, probably those mirror techniques, you know, who, you know, two way mirrors and who knows what else. Um, so, things to come. It was my entry point to him. I, I learn about this director. I go, like, okay, who, so the rabbit hole begins with things to come, this director. William Cameron Menzies. What else did he do? Let's let's see what else he he produced. And then that's when I found out, oh, he's this actual famous production designer. Main thing he did was the uh, Gone with the Wind movie. A uh, little movie called Gone with the Wind. Uh, when he was 43 years old, he was the production designer for Gone with the Wind. He was also... Um, he made such an impact on that movie... That they came up with the term production designer, 
And that was in 1939. First time production designer was listed in the credits. He knocked it out of the park so much, he won an Academy Award for that movie. I didn't know the director of Things to Come went on to, you know, win an Academy Award for production design. It was not an official category in the Oscars at the time. They had to come up with the award. And it was something like for his contribution to the overall look of the movie or something like that. You know, uh, he killed it, though. He killed it. Um, and he also directed certain scenes of the movie. Uh, one being uh, little moments in the movie, throwaway moments like the burning of Atlanta. Uh, he directed that stuff. Uh, and if you go online, you can see his storyboards. And you go like, oh my god, they're just like the storyboard. They're just like the movie. You know, he it he drew it out. He designed it. He shot the he shot the burning of Atlanta. He shot the King Kong wall burning and coming down. Um, amazing, amazing. But there's another shot, another scene, another moment in the movie that maybe you remember if you've seen the film. How can you forget? The scene with Scarlett O'Hara living in the hospital and going over the train tracks and that crane shot of all the wounded and we back up, pan up, and it's just this ocean of wounded and dying and misery and horror and ocean of terror, of war terror. And then we end on the tattered uh, Confederate flag. I mean, come on, people. That is the shot of that movie. And William Cameron Menzies directed that shot was was the guy was the guy another interesting rabbit hole here on that shot was the um was the connection to another favorite filmmaker of mine the great producer Val Luton who did um the cat people and he did the um he produced cat people I walk with a zombie uh the leopard man was probably like his his claim to fame, you know, back over at RKO, and he made those moody, uh, creepy, atmospheric horror films that are just amazing. Well, you know, their first four or five are amazing, <laughs> and then when uh, they start bringing in Boris Karloff, that you know, mileage may vary. Um, once they tried to formulate it, give it a, formalize it, and, you know, those become a little creaky. But, so the great Val Luton, you know, he's the one that says he came up with the crane shot. You know, I give it to Val. He probably said, hey, let's do something like this. I don't know. I gotta go. I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, David Selznick's, uh, errand boy. He's keeping me on a short leash, so, you know. Yeah, you know, they come out, and there's a bunch of dead people, and we pan it up, and we see all the dead people. He probably said something like that, and then William Cameron Menzies probably actually drew it out and, and figured out how to do it, and then directed that shot. So, um, three directors went through that movie. <clears throat> so, um, so Val Luton, and I was, I'm going to just say Val Luton and William Cameron Menzies came up with the one of the most iconic shots in... American cinema history. There, we'll say it that way. Um, 
William Cameron Menzies on Gone with the Wind. We've gone on from things to come. We're going into Gone with the Wind now, or but we're just going to pass through it here. But um, he drew three thousand drawings that visualized every scene from that movie, every scene, every cam- camera angle. Three thousand drawings. William Cameron Menzies. If you like that movie, you like William Cameron Menzies. <laughs> the end. You don't like Victor Fleming. I mean, you might like Victor Fleming, but. If you are into that movie, it is, William Cameron Menzies is probably a big part of that, of your love for that movie. So yeah, so he killed it and, and, uh, they came up with an Oscar for him because they said like, we got to give him something. I mean, the boy destroyed it. Um, and then that was in 1939 and 1940 at the age of 44, he was one of six directors on the movie of uh, the remake of Thief of Baghdad, uh, 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 Russell F- Douglas Fairbanks uh, was in the original one. This is the remake um, that they did that is, uh, you know, so colorful and beautiful to look at and is also on the Criterion channel, so you gotta check that out. Criterion channel is like 10 bucks, so it's a little expensive, but... Um, you know, the cost of two blockbuster videos back in the day. So think of it that way. Um, he was one of six directors on The Thief of Baghdad. They just kept going through him because people kept getting fired because I guess the movie was so complicated. And if you watch Thief of Baghdad, you know it's super complicated. He was also the associate art director on Thief of Baghdad. So he's not like an official production designer on that, but he is, his his hand was in it. In, in the producing. Cool thing about Thief of Baghdad is the main bad guy, the Jafar-like character, is played by Cabinet of Dr. Caligari's Conrad Veet. Um, and if you see Conrad Veet in uh, Thief of Baghdad, and you compare him to the Jafar from the Disney Aladdin, you go like, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> Disney strikes again. Uh, with pilfering other people's work. Um, but you could say, eh, you know, it was 50 years later, and, you know, that's kind of, you know, just a homage to uh, Thief of Baghdad. If that was the only similarity, that... (laughs) Thief of Baghdad and Aladdin is a great double feature. I'll just say that. Um... So, that was 44 that he worked on Thief of Baghdad. We're going to now jump forward 13 years. No. Yes. 13 years. To the year 1953, where he probably made his second most famous movie, After Things to Come. Oh, well, yeah. Second... If you just movie he worked on. Second most famous movie he directed, but as far as, you know, definitely Gone with the Wind is his most famous movie he worked on. One of his most famous movies that he directed, and the last movie he directed, feature film he directed, was the 1953 film Invaders from Mars, 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 Mars. Um, 1957. No, 1953, he was 57 years old when he made it. And this movie, I had seen the remake, 
I had never seen the original. This is me over the course of my week. I watch things to come. I start studying up on Wu and Cameron Menzies. I go like, what else did he do? He did Invaders from Mars. Where is Invaders from Mars? It's on Amazon Prime. Let's watch Invaders from Mars. Okay. So, put on Invaders from Mars. I only was familiar with uh, some shots that, you know, were shown in other movies where it's playing on TV. Or, and I, I knew a lot of, you know, I had seen the remake probably half dozen times. Because of my love for Toby Hooper. Um, Vaders from Mars. What grabs you first and foremost is this super semi-color film processing they did on it. It's kind of a non-technicolor. <laughs> trying to, I mean, creating... There's nothing to describe the look of super semi-color. It is bonkers super saturated blues crazy saturated yellows the reds are orange um everything looks like somebody took a crayon and bared down with all of their weight and colored this movie it is eye-popping to look at and it's so eye-popping because it's not a very popular process because it probably looked like we don't want everybody to see the movie and think they're on drugs. So it wasn't super popular for feature films. The Cinecolor process was mainly known for making shorts and cartoons. So some of the old Max Fleischer uh, produced cartoons were uh, color, shot in color with the super Cinecolor process. It was Cinecolor, which is a two color process. It was like a black and white, where they would cram three different uh, films into the camera. I don't know really how this works, but it was like a black and white, uh, a, a, a cyan, and a, another color. And then they went to the three-strip process, which is like Technicolor. Technicolor was also a three-strip process. Um, Super Cinecolor was a... Th they got rid of the two process, made it Super Cinecolor, which was a three-strip process. And the, the results, you'll just have to look at Invaders from Mars for five seconds and go like, this movie is bonkers looking, all right? And so, um, it, it looks like, like a cartoon. When I found out it was mainly used for cartoons, I go, I look at this movie, it's, it's about as cartoony a movie can look. It looks like Dick Tracy. Had Dick Tracy been shot in super cinecolor, um, that would have been the way to do it. Mm-mm-mm. What are we talking about? Invaders from Mars. Super Cine Color. Um, just down the rabbit hole, if you want to know about Super Cine Colors, Super Cine Color, uh, you can go to filmcolors.org and there's a website that will show you all the different film stocks, what all the different film stocks look like, when they were in active uh, use, and you can see some uh, screen uh, some, some tests, test clips using each of the different processes. Filmcutlers.org. Check it out. Um, but that's where I got to see some other shots from Super Cine Color, which is pretty cool. Um, so that is going to grab you immediately. And what else is going to grab you? You're going to get... A, 
to see that crazy Martian head in the fishbowl. And what I found out was that was acted by actually a lady, Luce, or Lucy Potter, who was one of the midgets from, oh, dwarves from Wizard of Oz, played one of the munchkins. Um, excuse me. And so that's interesting. That's a tie to another, ooh, that's a tie to another Victor Fleming movie. Because Victor Fleming directed Wizard of Oz. Victor Fleming directed uh, Gone with the Wind. Okay, so cool. All roads lead back to Victor Fleming, I guess. Okay, Luce Potter uh, acted in Wizard of Oz. Uh, this was a movie he directed in 1953. He would be dead three years later. Um, this was the last feature he directed. He and uh, I think he did something for TV after this, but this was the last feature film he directed. Not the last movie he worked on. He worked up, uh, up until they closed the casket on him. Um, this movie has an amazing look, and like, um, like uh, probably all of his movies, has this amazing look, and it has an amazing shot compositions. Again, you can tell that he got everybody moved around into the frame exactly so, so it would look exactly like his storyboard. <laughs> which is such an unnatural way to perform but it looks so good on camera that's what I've always liked about John Frankenheimer films is just how he frames up his people in those shots and said so he's like don't move if you move you're gonna mess up my shot composition um so he really leans into an Invaders from Mars, William Cameron Menzies really leans into the uh, overall um, leans into set design very heavily. And what is very interesting about this movie is the sets have this creepy minimalistic dreamlike quality to them where if you've seen the movie you'll know why. I don't want to spoil it. Okay, it doesn't really ruin the movie. In fact, it adds to the effect of the movie is that you find out that this movie is all a nightmare. The the main protagonist kid is having. This kid is like an astro astronomy buff and he's been looking out the window and he sees a, a UFO land in the back and after that, everybody starts acting weird. Um, a UFO lands in his backyard <laughs> and after that, his parents start acting weird, and then the townspeople start acting weird, and it's like this nightmare movie for a kid. And I looked at the director, I mean, the writer of this, it didn't look like it was based on any existing story. Um, the writer, I didn't recognize any, Robert Blake, I believe it is, uh, the writer, I didn't recognize anything else he had done. Um, so this may be his most famous movie. Um, but it, you know, definite ties to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This precedes it by three years. Um, so pre-Body Snatchers, uh, aliens coming and taking over the minds of people. Um, <laughs> which, if that is not, you know, Red Scare, the plot of this movie is basically a foreign power coming to America and messing up our rocket system. Uh, through sabotage, you know, taking people, brainwashing them, and turning them into spies for this foreign power. 
I mean, it's just like, me, 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 message, message, public, our fears, our fears, you know, better read than dead, beep, 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 you know, it's very much there. I was also sort of seen as like, uh, maybe a post-war anxiety film where these people, they've seen something and they've changed, you know, the dad come, you know, is a nice loving dad. He goes over the hill he comes back from the over the hill and he's a changed person and, you know, violent and uh, kind of an asshole, you know. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, people came back. PTSD, you know, it was a thing. Um, and, um, you know, not really talked about during post-World War II. But it happened. Um, oh... Okay, I think we're wrapping up here. So, thank God, right? Um, so this movie has this very unique, because of the sets, because of the super cine color, this movie has a very unique look and feel to it, a very dreamlike, hyper-real feel to it, a very nightmarish feel to it. I've never seen such a colorful film feels so ominous and terrible. Um, the people, the acting is great. The people who have been taken over by the, the Martians are great. The Martians look kind of funny. There's a great um, head in a bowl, but, you know, the actual Martians just look like guys in fuzzy pajamas <laughs> with welding goggles on or something. They're, they're hysterical. Um, uh so the Toby Hooper remake definitely went all out to try to improve the fuzzy pajama look. Kind of like how uh, the Twilight Zone remake tried to improve on the fuzzy pajama look of the uh, Terror of 50, at 50,000 Feet monster. Um, so uh, uh, the design of the sets are very weird, minimalistic, uh, very, very focused very minimalistic, very scary looking. And, you know, my favorite kind of design is like 1950s science fiction UFO, uh, that, what, ret Future Lux uh, look on things. is. And this movie's got it. This movie's got the great interiors of a spaceship that you just want your entire house to look like. Um... One thing I'm always interested in is, like, just how old my parents were when these movies came out. So my dad was two years old in 1953. Um, and so my mom would have been... Uh, I don't think she was born. Um, okay, so... Invaders from Mars, huge recommend. Great movie. Uh, has a great look. Uh, the other popular movies in 1953 were War of the Worlds and Stalag 17. That's uh, the two that I knew about. Um, so, uh, Stalag 17, Timeless, War of the Worlds, amazing. Can you imagine going to see a War of the Worlds Invaders from Mars double feature with these different types of, what's cool is that's two different invasion movies. One told the big budget way and one told the low budget way. The big budget way is you see the spaceships blowing stuff up. You see the, the aliens look like, you know, really detailed model, uh, puppetry, uh, and then you've got Invaders from Mars, which is the low-budget way, which is about mind control. And so the people are proxy alien uh, combatants. 
and um, and then the when you do see the aliens, they're guys in fuzzy pajamas. Uh, but I truly enjoyed this. I think I like this one more than... Well, I'm not going to say more than War of the Worlds. I'm just going to say two sides of the same coin. I would say I really like the designs in Invaders from Mars, though, and what William Cameron Menzies did. Bill Menzies did. Um, the remake... We'll just talk real quick about the Toby Hooper remake. Gotta give some love to Toby Hooper. Remake is not his best movie, but... He is extremely faithful to the original. I mean, he loved that movie, and it very was very faithful to it. Did not go off the beaten path. I think, though, what hurts the movie is what, what I would have liked to have seen. Who knows why movies work or don't work? He could have made the same movie a year later, did it the same way, and it come out perfect, you know? You make you get to you only get to make the movie one time, and um, so what I thought was missing from the movie the remake was just the that Bill Menzies magic, you know, um, great sets in the uh, underground, a great monster design, and the head is great, and poor little guy, poor little fellow, you know that kind of stuff, and. Hey, little guy, uh, the uh, the dad, great. Uh, I mean, great stuff. Great stuff is in that movie. But had because both movies are saying that they're a dream. Um, had had they been able to had they had the budget or whatever to, you know, really set design the movie the way Menzies did it. And really kind of recreate that kind of foreboding look of the world. That nightmarish, things aren't quite right aspect of the world. Um, a kind of a Caligari-esque uh, view of, the, of reality. That movie would have been amazing. And had we had the Toby Hooper... It didn't have to be hugely uh, budgeted. Had we had the Toby Hooper from uh, Eaten Alive directing... Invaders from Mars, that movie would still be, like, lauded as one of the great movies of all time. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. And we got weird uh, William Finley uh, performances and, you know, those those sets that are obviously sets in um, uh, Eaten Alive and that kind of hyper-control he had over the look on Eaten Alive. Had he been able to... Uh, put that into his Invaders from Mars remake. I mean, who would have let him do that? But I'm just saying, had he done that, that would have been pretty great. So, but all love to Toby Hooper. The man did what he could do, despite what um, uh, Dan O'Bannon calls him. Okay. Dan O'Bannon once said, having Toby Hooper direct your movie is uh, equal to having Bozo the Clown direct your movie. Which is uh, a terrible, terrible thing to say. And Dan O'Bannon only made one or two movies. So, um, directed them. Uh, so he can't talk. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about William Cameron Menzies. Let's wrap this up. Because, by God, we've been talking over the time I wanted to talk. Alright, so next episode will be more focused. Let's say that. 
it will be a focused manic episode. Okay, so I was thinking, who other, what other production designers also have directed films? And one of my hero production designers is Bo Welsh. Um, Welch. Uh, he did all these. He did Men in Black. He did Edward Scissorhands. You think Tim Burton. You think Bo Welch. All right? Just put those two people on your head together. Um, guy's pretty amazing. Um, he directed... Uh, he did Men in Black. He did Edward Scissorhands. Then he went on to direct, and he directed the Michael Myers uh, Cat in a Hat movie. And I've not seen that. That cat... Michael Myers in that cat suit... It was very disturbing looking. I didn't couldn't make myself watch it. But I guess if you're a furry, that's your movie. That may be your Citizen Kane. Okay. Um, he has that's the only feature film he directed. And he went on to direct a series of unfortunate events for Netflix. He directed a couple episodes of that. You can totally see that aspect in that movie. That movie is beautifully designed, production-wise. Um... You got Bo Welch, the great Bo Welch. Um, so directed one feature film. Mike Myers was in it. He never directed again a feature. But who directs features nowadays anyway? Um, John Barry, who directed, who pr- was the production designer on Star Wars, a little movie called Star Wars. Production designer on Superman and Superman Two, Star Wars: Empire Strikes Back. Um, how can you not separate your thoughts of Star Wars and Superman with the production design? Uh, he directed, he started to direct a little movie called Saturn 3 with Farrah Fawcett Majors and Kurt, and the age-unappropriate Kurt Douglas. Um, so, he, John Barry was directing Saturn 3. He was following behind He's a production designer. He probably wasn't uh, used to yelling at people. And so he had, he had to direct Kirk Douglas and Harvey Keitel, powerhouse actors in that movie. I think they just ate him up and chewed him up and spat him out. And uh, he left the movie. Uh, somebody else had to come in and finish it. So didn't even get it all the way done. But who can blame him? <clears throat> he's he's a brilliant production designer. He's not you, you know, he's not probably not Mr. People person. And unfortunately, right after Saturn 3, he was working on uh working on uh Empire Strikes Back and he collapses and dies uh during production of that movie of Meningitis. So I get the feeling that these guys are workaholics, and they kind of work themselves to death. Uh, Menzies was only 60 when he died. Um, John Barry was younger than that. I think he was 40, in his 40s. Um, Bo Welch, he's still alive. Good. Keep on going, Bo Welch. Take care of yourself, man. Um, Catherine, we're going to do that. So, these guys have not really had director careers they stuck they tried they dipped their toe into um directing and then went back to uh production design a guy another guy who had that kind of experience was production designer of jaws close encounters escape from new york the great joe alves 
one of the uh, unsung heroes of Jaws, who kept that production going, made the look of everything, designed the, when you think Jaws, you think Quint's uh, <laughs> shark killing lair. Well, that was all Joe Alves. Uh, Joe Alves um, went on to direct the great movie Jaws 3D, which uh, the podcast uh, uh, things, oh no, uh, the podcast um, uh, How Did This Get Made has a great episode on Jaws 3. Uh, Jaws 3 it was the first movie I saw in a theater and said, this is not very good. Um, and I was, that was 83, I was eight years old. And I said, nope, this movie is not, not cutting it. Mm. And the last director we're going to talk about, probably the most successful that I found in my research, the production designer of Brain Dead from Roger Corbin and Tapeheads, the great Catherine Hardwick, who got international fame from her directing the first Twilight movie. But... What, say that what you will. Her other movie, that first film she directed, though, was uh, 13. And that's a really good movie. So, Lords of Dogtown, I hear, is good. Um, but I will just call her the director of 13. Twilight, take it or leave it. I mean, very influential director, though. And um, so, Catherine Hardrick cracked the code. and was able to continue and uh continue on directing after leaving production design. If there's others, I would like to know because I I looked up a uh, production designer of Blade Runner to see if they ever went on to direct a movie. No, you know, a lot of these people are totally happy making their money uh being production design. If they're good at it, they don't have aspirations it seems to uh leave their art studio and become, you know, you know, top dog on a film set. Um, so, with, with, that's pretty much it, guys. I'm just going to say there is an entire movie based, no, no, not an entire movie. Um, there is an entire, uh, book, uh, about William Cameron Menzies, Bill, Billy Menzies, um, called The Shape of Films to Come, and it is 432 pages worth of book and you can get it for your uh Kindle for five dollars. So not a bad way of uh not a bad way to spend your time if this has uh sparked your interest and you now want to know every living thing about William Cameron Menzies, uh you can buy this book and four hundred and thirty two pages later you will be the expert and you can impress everybody at the party that you get invited to, um, one day you'll be invited to a party and you'll be able to blow their minds with this information. I would also say I got some of this information from fastcompany.com, this website, fastcompany.com. You can go there and there is a little article about it. And also you can, uh, Google image search, uh, William Cameron Menzies, and you will get all sorts of great, uh, storyboard art pop up. Uh, for you to check out. I highly recommend doing that um, just to get a visual component here. So that's it, guys. I am done talking. I have been talking so long. 
um, over an hour. And so I appreciate everybody tuning into this first episode. Um, we're just going to see how this goes. Uh, you know, hopefully this won't be the last episode. Hopefully I'll do it long enough to get good at it. I'd like to thank, uh, uh, Brian Meltdown from Movie Meltdown, uh, for just, uh, putting me on his podcast and showing me that I actually like rambling on about this kind of stuff. And, um, who knows, maybe one in future episodes we'll have other people join in and give their opinions, um, you know, just based on the subject matter, uh, who I'm going to pull in on this. So I appreciate, uh, you listening to this first episode and, uh, I don't have a sign off yet. So, uh, we will tell you what that is at a later time. Oh yeah. Yeah. So until next time, fight evil.